There are those of you that are still trying to get a grip on who Jesus is and what your relationship is to him. And so the principles that the Bible lays down on our internal motivations and our external guidelines for giving and our use of wealth and possessions, uh, they may be offensive. And so first things, right? But in the beginning of this chapter, uh, which we didn't read, we're given an interesting setting statement. It's in verse 1. I think it's going to be on the board behind me. It says in verse 1 of chapter 12, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples. So, so there's this crowd of thousands of people, and J.C. Here, here is speaking to his disciples. So apparently he is wanting the crowd to overhear what he is saying to his disciples. And most of the material that we have where Jesus is speaking on money, this is the case. He's speaking to his disciples in hopes that others might overhear. And so apparently the conclusion that I can draw is that one of the ways you'll get to know who Jesus is and you'll get to understand what a relationship with him looks like is by hearing him talk to his disciples about money, about possessions. Therefore, we're going to see what he says to Christians about money and the attitude. And, and so if you're here this morning and you're unsure what you believe, here's my suggestion. Let nothing I say and nothing I tell you Jesus say be interpreted by you as a request for your money. I'm not asking for your money. Anchor's not asking for your money. Jesus is certainly not asking for your money. He is asking for something far more significant than your money, and we're going to get into that, but it's not your money that he's asking for. Now, as we look at the passage, there's three R's to understanding it. It's not reading, writing, and arithmetic. Do you guys ever get that, how that's called the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic? It's just silly. They don't even have the right letter that they start with. But we have three R's. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be looking at the request, the refusal, and the rebuke. And as we look at this passage, we're going to ask the question, why the request? Why the refusal? And why the rebuke? And as we ask the text that question, I hope all sorts of things begin to emerge for understanding. It says in verse 13 in the request, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so we ask the question, why is he asking this? Why is the request coming? Why would this man come to Jesus and ask this? Well, there's a general answer. You see how it says teacher or rabbi. In, in that day and age, the teachers and the rabbis, the, the accredited rabbis would be the ones they would sit in the temple court and they would adjudicate. There was no uh, court system that they would go to in this day and age to settle these kind of suits. And actually, there's an Old Testament law that said that, you know, if, if my dad dies, that the inheritance is meant to be divided two-thirds for the older brother, one-third for the younger brother. And so... The general answer is that this guy is just maybe coming to Jesus because he's a rabbi, he's a teacher that he respects, but Jesus is not one of the trained, accredited rabbis. He's not one of the Sanhedrin. He's not one of those ones that would sit in the temple. And so the general answer as to why this man is making this request of Jesus is not enough. So again, why is Jesus being asked this request? Is it possible that it's because Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else? 
Is that surprising for you? Jesus talks about money more than anything else. You go and read the Bible and you'll find it to be true. 11 of his 39 parables deal with possessions and money. That's 28% you uh, mathematicians in the room. Benny, please don't hold me to my maths. But I think that's 28% of the time when Jesus was telling a parable, it was about money. And so this guy says to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is relentless in talking about money, he's always talking about it. He's like, hey, Jesus, help me out. Help my brother out with this issue, would you? It's like us, right? We sit and listen to sermons and we're like, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. They so need to hear this sermon. Don't do that this morning. Ask God to speak to your own heart. And so Jesus says, hey, mate, Since you're on about money, can you help my brother with this? I know that sounds funny coming from an American accent. So this man has so relentlessly and constantly heard Jesus talking about generosity and the proper use of money that he says, will you help with this? Now, why did Jesus speak about money so often? Why? Well, money is at the heart of everything, as I already said. Money is at the deepest darkest recesses of our heart. A friend once told John Wesley, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening in the 1730s, that his brother had converted to Jesus. John responded immediately with mild skepticism in words along the lines of, hmm, very interesting. Has his wallet been converted too? You know, his concern was well aimed. The way that we view money says so much about us, doesn't it? Now, if I might just deviate in regard to giving, and not just giving at Anchor. Um, don't, don't let this be interpreted as we want more of your money here at Anchor, but just generosity, giving as general. As I talk to you Christians for a moment, giving is at the heart of everything a Christian is and does. It's at the heart of everything a Christian is and does. Everything a Christian is can be summed up in the cardinal virtues of faith, hope, and love. That's everything a Christian is, faith, hope, and love. That's our character. Now, faith. Let me dig in a little bit more. Why don't I give more? I don't have enough faith. I'm scared. I wonder whether God will take care of me. I'm worried that if I give to God, that He's not going to look after me. It's not a lack of generosity. It's far deeper than a lack of generosity. It's a lack of faith in us. What about hope? What is hope? Well, hope is where we get our sense of value, our sense of worth from. Hope. Why don't I give more? Well, is my hope in Christ? Or is my hope in the way I live, in the the places I eat, the clothes I wear? One of the reasons why we don't give, one of the reasons why I don't give, is because my hope isn't in Christ. My hope is in the material often. It's in the things of this world. Love, another of the cardinal virtues. Why don't I give? I lack sympathy and sensitivity to the incredible needs around me. We don't even really want to know about the needs around us if we're really honest with ourselves. We're not that dissimilar to those in the world that, you know, when something atrocious happens in our world, it's all over the media, but we want to push it out of our minds. Babies being buried in sand and and being put in in storm drains or wars going on. We read about it, but we want to quickly push it aside. We don't want to meditate on those things. It's too painful. It's too hard. 
We're desensitized. So faith, hope, and love, they're reasons why we don't give. We don't have faith. We don't hope. We don't love as we should at times. And I'm not just sitting here accusing you of that. It's my own heart. That's true of me. So if that's everything that a Christian is, what about everything that a Christian is to do? What's a Christian to do, you might ask? We're to serve God. We're to serve other Christians, and we're to serve our world. But not just with lip service, but with our reality. What's our reality, you might ask? It's our tangible, isn't it? I encourage you guys to read Acts chapter... um, what is it? Acts chapter, Acts 4 through 6, if you want to see a church that was radically generous. I mean, this church was radical. I, I don't know any other way to explain it. They sold all of their possessions and they distributed as each one had need. They were radically cross-cultural and the world was affected by it. Tim Keller says, the reality of God's generosity to us will never hit the world till they see our generosity to everybody else. Read that again. The reality of God's generosity to us will never hit the world till they see our generosity to everybody else. There will be no impact unless we view our possessions, our money, concretely, differently to what other people do. We are to be remarkably different. We are to be visibly different. We are to be concretely different. And so Jesus speaks so much about money because of its close connection to our hearts. And that's the reason why the man asks the question. But now let's take a look at the refusal. It says in verse 14, But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So why the refusal? In some ways, one of the biggest surprises of this text is the refusal to do it, right? If Jesus is so concerned with social justice and doing the right thing by people, why is he refusing Jesus responds with, man, who made me a judge or a divider, an arbitrator over you? Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? This guy's just coming to Jesus, asking for Jesus to help him out a bit. He knows that Jesus is constantly on about money. And he's like, would you give a a brother a hand? What's the deal here? If you aren't confused, let me help you be confused a little bit more. Because this passage right here, Jesus says, I'm not an arbitrator. But just a few verses later in Luke chapter 12, he says he is an arbitrator. He is a divider. He actually says, you know, if father or mother, um, if, if you hold them nearer or dearer than you do to me, I've come to divide asunder, to separate those things. I need to be the most important thing. I am a divider. I am not a divider. What, I mean, what's the deal here? Is Jesus a divider? Is he not a divider? What's the reason he would say this? What he was saying to this man is this. I'm not appointed for this kind of division. What he's saying is if you come to me and you ask me to divide inheritance for you, before you've asked me to divide your life, I won't do it. 
If you come to me asking for anything before you've given me your everything, you don't understand me. You don't know what I've been appointed to do. You don't understand my mission. Jesus is saying, this is not what I was sent to do. Jesus was not about to be distracted from his chief mission. The phrase here in this text that says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, in the Greek it literally says, you do not exist in your possessions. So Jesus is saying, my job is to tell you what life is. My job is to show you what your life really consists in. What you've done, mister, is you've come to me thinking your life consists in this. Every one of you guys have something you think your life consists in. And if you come to Jesus saying, I I know you're a teacher, or even better, I know that you're the son of God, and and you're asking for that thing that you think your life consists in, you're not serving him, you're using him. God, I, 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 I need this promotion. I really need this promotion. Can, can you give it to me? I mean, you're God after all. You, you, can, you can do that. You guys, you're missing the point. You're coming to God, asking him to serve you, asking him to meet your needs and, 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 and what you think are your needs. But he's saying, I'm here to be your life. I'm here to give you far more than just your physical, everyday needs. You think your life consists in fill in the blank. What does your life consist in? You've come asking me to get this or that for you. You don't understand what's going on. You haven't understood what I'm here for. I'm not here to get you things. I'm here to be your life. You see, Jesus is here to ask us a question, far more fundamental question that we're wanting to ask. Am I your life? Ask yourself, am I your life. That's what Jesus is asking you. Is he? Is he your life? Or am I simply an object that you use to get your way? You're coming to get what you think will satisfy you, but you're living a life on a bubble that's going to burst. I am your life, Jesus says. Don't give me your money before you give me your life. That's what he's after. And you're using him if you're giving your money before you give him your life. Anything we come and say, Lord, tell this to happen, is not the priority. It's not primary. And so for this reason is the refusal. Priorities. I didn't come to get the circumstances of your life to be in order. There's more to you than that. And it's interesting because in the passage where Jesus is teaching, he's teaching all about an eternal perspective. Before he gets to this section and after he gets to this section, it's all about eternity. And so this guy has this weird way of Jesus is talking about eternity eternity and eternal perspective. He's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. What about my money? What about my inheritance? And Jesus is steering the ship back. Jesus goes on to say, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. So on top of being this man's life and not giving him what he wants, Jesus warns this man against the deceptiveness of greed. How many of you can say right now in life that you're content? Anyone? That you're you're pretty content? By a show of hands. 
Raise your hands. Any of you content? Okay. How many of you that raised your hands, or even if you didn't, that think you're content are pursuing more things? Raise your hand. Why? Well, that, that's, that's what greed is, right? When we have things that we think we're content with, and yet we're pursuing more. The word in the Greek is pleon exius. It means simply to have more. That's what greed is. It's like when I go out to eat, right? I go to a restaurant, I eat a huge meal, and after I'm done eating, Pete, you can sympathize with me, dessert comes out, right? And I'm, I'm full. And yet, I'm like, and I'm not a cow, I don't have six stomachs, but I tend to think I am. I'm like, I, I can go again. I can have sweets. And so we fill up more. That, that's the idea here, right? I know it's a far cry from the reality of what greed is, but it's, it's this lust, this desire for more. How many of you would say that you're greedy? By a show of hands. I am. You know, we tend not to see re, uh, greed as a real serious issue. We really don't. Uh, I've been at many church services and I've seen a lot of people go forward for prayer. If the call goes out for those struggling with sexual lust or anger or the need for reconciliation, you can be sure that the lines will form and people will come up and, and get prayer. But greed? People don't often ask for prayer to deal with greed. When was the last time you asked for prayer to deal with your greed? There's only two possible explanations. Either greed is not a problem, even though it is, or we don't realize that we're greedy. You see, we filter our internet and we train ourselves against lust, but what do we do to set up against the struggle of greed? Do we do anything to guard against it? Honestly, do you guys guard against greed? We don't really take it all that serious, if we're honest. Even when we look at kids that are like lusting for more, they, they, you know, they're, they're like coveting more and more. Oh, how cute. The little boy wants more. <laughs> He's greedy. It's okay. Covetousness is one of the Ten Commandments. That's greed. Covetousness is greed. I'll often say things like, oh, I'm coveting right now. I'd really like that house that I drive by. Or, oh, I'm coveting that car. And I almost play it down like it's no big deal. It's, it's not a big deal. Oh, yeah, I'm coveting. It's okay, though. Everyone covets. I was even this week watching Shark Tank, which, funny enough, is one of my favorite shows. And if you don't know what Shark Tank is, it's, it's this show where these entrepreneurs come and they pitch their ideas to these millionaire and billionaires. And these millionaires and billionaires, they're the sharks. And they're sitting there, and, and, and they're saying to the guys all about how they want to make more money. And it's funny, because when I was watching this show, I actually... I'm going to admit this, I had my computer open reviewing my notes on greed as I'm watching a show that is 100% about greed and these guys wanting more and more and more. Or or let me give you another personal example of, of, of greed. There probably isn't a day that goes by that I do not look at domain for a bigger, better house. I have the app on my phone. I'm always like, oh, I want to provide a better, bigger house. Those of you guys that have been to my house, my house is amazing. My wife is brilliant at styling my house. My house is so nice, and I'm so grateful for it. And yet, there's this insatiable appetite for more, bigger, better. I want to own it. I just don't want to rent it. I want to own it.
Greed is the respectable sin. So don't assume this morning that you're not greedy. Stop and think for yourself right now, am I greedy? Francis Chan tells the story of how he went to a Chinese restaurant and uh, because he's Chinese and so, uh, and afterwards, uh, it's funny how Francis Chan tells it, but he's like, I'm Chinese, I go to Chinese restaurants. And afterwards he got a fortune cookie. He opens the fortune cookie um, after eating and it says, your judgment is a little off at this time. And he was so bummed. He's like, who gets a fortune cookie that criticizes them? Have you guys ever gotten one of those? A fortune cookie that criticizes you? It's a bit harsh, isn't it? Your judgment's a little off at this time. But sometimes I think we, like that fortune cookie, are a bit off in our self-evaluation, our judgment of our greediness. I really think we are. Here's a test to determine if you're greedy. For most of us, money equals one of the three S's, status, security, or solution. And for each of those potentials, there's a corresponding crash. We either get depressed, anxious, or anger when, angry when money doesn't come through for us or when we don't have money. Not so. Try asking yourself how you responded when you're around people who have more than you have or what you don't. How does it feel when you're around those people? My guess is that if your relationship with money is unhealthy, that somewhere along the line you'll notice depression, anxiety, anger creeping in. Tara and I have these friends in Summer Hill and they're very well off. They have a beautiful house. And, and uh, when we invite them over for a meal, we find this immense pressure to put on the best spread. And I almost, I'm, I'm anxious because of, and really what it is, is it's my relationship to money. I don't have a lot. I want to impress them. It's, I want to impress man, which is another issue altogether. But I, 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 wanna, I want nice things. I want to be able to do nice things like they do. I'm greedy. I want more. Recently, I just confessed that to them, and it was quite freeing. I was like, when you guys come over, I always feel like I've got to give the best. And they're like, no, you don't have to do that. Jesus warns us here to be on guard against greed. Although he didn't issue a similar warning against adultery or murder, did he? Did Jesus issue a warning against those things? No. Why? Because they're obvious. Who in the middle of an you know, extramarital affair throws back the sheets and cries, oh, wow, I'm committing adultery. I had no idea that the lust, the porn, the lack of self-effort in my marriage, uh, the inappropriate friendships, the, the cross boundaries were going to result in this. Who had any idea? Now, that doesn't happen, does it? It's clear. Lust is obvious. Anger is obvious, but greed's different. Greed is subtle. Greed knows how to hide in our blind spots. Greed lingers in most of us, even though few have the guts to admit it. Watch out. Be careful. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed Jesus instructs. And then Paul also instructs to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6, be careful, young Timothy, not to fall into this. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. And so this man in our text is standing before Almighty God He's being offered relationship with him. And all this man is thinking about is money, which leads us to the rebuke. Verse 16, 
He told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crop. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool this night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God calls him a fool. Jesus calls this man a fool. A fool is someone that is not thinking. Someone that is out of touch with reality. That's what a fool is. And in this passage, it's not just about, uh, it's not just about anything blinding you to reality, causing you to be a fool, but it's about money blinding you to reality. Material possessions blinding you to reality. So money made this man a fool, is the conclusion, right? Money made this man a fool. Meaning money spiritually blinded him to God's reality. And it did so in two ways. Firstly, money blinded him to the existence of spiritual reality. And money blinded him to the principles of spiritual reality. I'm going to look at those two points a little closer. First, this man saved as if life was all there was. But in reality, there's an immaterial world as well. Another way to put it is that if there is a physical reality, and there is, to save nothing would be stupid, right? There is a physical reality. To save nothing would be stupid or foolish. But if there is something besides the physical world, and there is, to save everything is equally stupid or foolish. Foolish. The text goes on to say, you fool, you're dying tonight. Who will receive this? What we have here is the, the man who said, I'm smart. I'll, I'll put my money into barns and banks. They'll be safe there, my money. But even the banks will fall apart is what Jesus is trying to get across. Jesus is saying, put your money into God, into others. They'll last forever. But the things of this world are temporal. There's a material world and an immaterial world. Diognetus, during the earliest parts of the church, was recorded saying this. He said, Christians share their table with all, though they don't share their bed with all. Though poor, they make many rich. I love that quote. Christians share their table with all, though they don't share their bed with all. Though poor, they make many rich rich. What was Diognetus getting at? Well, in that culture, in that day, people were losing their sense of the gods, of the eternal. And therefore, when you become completely concentrated on the physical, on this world, and what's happening here in that pagan society, which is what was happening in that pagan society, um, then sex is no big deal, right? Because if you're only focused here, it doesn't really matter what, what you do with sex or with your body. But money? Money's a big deal because money is what allows you to enjoy the physical. Sex, no big deal. Money, big deal. 
Money becomes sacred. It's what's needed for enjoyment in a society that's devoid of spiritual reality. But Christians, because they believe in the material world and the immaterial, would completely reverse this. They gave their money to all that asked, and they only had sex with one or none. Totally different. Totally countercultural. Howard Stern, you guys know who Howard Stern is? He's an American radio show host, and his shows are filthy. I mean, they talk about sex every, probably every single show in some way or another, and quite openly. And he has no problem telling what he does in bed with his wife, uh, but he, several years ago, he, he went for a political campaign. And as he went up into this political campaign, he was asked for financial disclosure. What did he do, do you think? Pulled out of the campaign. Sex, no problem. I'll talk about it any day you want, any day of the week. But my finances, too sensitive. No way. Our culture is not that dissimilar to the culture that Diognetus was talking about. That we're only concerned with the physical, the here and the now, and we have no concern for the eternal. Money and sex are reversed. And this is our problem as Christians. We live in a secular material world, and in our minds we believe there's both the material and the immaterial, but we're affected by the foolishness that says that this world is all that matters. Store up. And the result is we begin to treat our money in that way. If you get to the stance where you don't want anyone talking about your money with you, there's a problem. Can I encourage you to have some friends that you go to and you say, hey, will you help me out with my greed? Will you hold me accountable to this? Because I know, based on the Bible, it's a propensity in my heart to be greedy and to lust for more always. If you're offended when people talk to you about your money, there's a problem with the heart. You might not mind me standing up here even and talking about love or faith, but money, that's confronting. It's really confronting. It's when it gets personal. And if that's the case, if we're much like, if we're, though we have an understanding of the immaterial world, living in a material world, if we're just being basically going with the flow of our society and our culture around us and we're lusting after those same things, then we're envying and embracing the spirit of the world. Money has made us a fool. Money tends to blind us to the existence of a spiritual reality. But it also blinds us, secondly, to the principles of a spiritual reality. What does that mean? The principle of progress. The world's principle is to store up, right? Store up, store up, store up. That's how you progress in this life, isn't it? In this world, when you store up, you progress. You buy a little house. You sell it. You get a bigger house. You sell it. You get a bigger house. And then you leave a huge inheritance for your your kids. Store up. Store up, store up. That's the progress of our world. That's the principles within our world. But God's principle, principle is empty your barns. And as we'll see later, store up in the immaterial. 
store up in the heavenlies, as we're going to talk more about next week. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The world says be rich towards yourself, and Jesus says be rich towards God. There's a verse, I didn't have it, the last verse. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So also are we fools when we lay up treasures for ourselves and we are not rich towards God. Again, the world says be rich toward yourself, but Jesus says be rich towards God. Give it away must be the principle of spiritual progress for us. Jesus himself embodied this, didn't he? Jesus was the perfect example of this. And he did it for each and every one of us in this room. Jesus is the ultimate fool. Jesus, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself, took upon the form of a humble man, and then not only did he take upon the form of a man, but then he went through the humiliation of going to a cross to bear the consequences of you and my sin. Foolishness. It's foolishness to the world. Jesus became a fool. He embodied this. He gave up everything. And Jesus progressed, principle of progress, through losing. He won through dying. The victory was his through his death. The gospel is that, is that he came with all of his spiritual riches and became poor that we might be rich. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God gave His entitlements so that we could be rich. Isn't that good news, you guys? That's our news. Though we're greedy, though we often lust for more, Though we embrace the spirit of the world and the progress of, I'm going to get more, get more, get more, acquire, 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 Jesus actually became a fool, humbled himself so that we could be rich. We are already rich. How are we rich towards God? Believe. Believe upon the one whom the Father has sent and you will be rich beyond richness that this world can offer you. This is how you know you've experienced wealth in your life, right here. Spurgeon says this, the one way you know that Jesus is precious to you is that some things else are? No. The one thing you know that Jesus is precious to you is that nothing else is precious. Nothing. That's how you know if you're rich towards God. Ask yourself, is anything else precious? Because I'll tell you what, if anything else was precious for Jesus, he would not have come and made himself a fool that you might be made rich. But you were the apple of his eye. You were the pearl of great price. 
You were the thing that he was willing to trade everything to gain. It was you that he had in his eye. Everything else is expendable, you guys. Is Jesus all that is precious? Your money doesn't have to be precious anymore. It doesn't have to have a hold on you anymore. If you're in your right mind, you can say, world, you don't owe me anything because I'm spiritually rich. And the Bible declares that you are rich, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that's come to take up residence within us if we have believed. And, we, and, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we've been purchased by the one that could purchase us, that made us and then purchased us back again. Is that precious to you? Is that all that matters to you? I pray it is, you guys. I pray it is. Are we rich towards God? Again, the good news for those of us that have placed our faith in Christ is that we are rich and we have been made rich towards God because of the finished work of Jesus. And so this morning as we come to communion, I want you guys to celebrate that. Though you're greedy beyond uh, you know, beyond what you would like to admit, you have a God that has taken that greed. He's borne the wrath that you deserve and you now are rich towards God. He became a fool that you could be rich. And so I encourage you to celebrate that as you come up and you take communion. These symbols are to be symbols to remind yourself. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, what I've done on your behalf. Celebrate. Also, there's, I'm going to be up here or up the back for prayer. Uh, maybe Arnaldo will be back here with me as well. And um, we want to pray for you. If you have a problem with greed, come for prayer. And those of you that don't know Jesus or that are still wrestling with what a relationship with him looks like, again, he isn't after your money. He isn't after your possessions. He's after your heart. Remember how I said at the beginning that I'm not going to be asking for your money? but he's going to ask for something far more significant. He's asking for your life. Jesus wants you. He loves you. He's come that you might have freedom from sin and life everlasting. Will you surrender your life to him this morning? I'm going to pray and ask the band to come up and we're going to respond to the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you became a fool for me. And Father, I'm, I'm sorry for the times where I have lusted and longed for things other than you. I'm sorry for the times, God, that I've stored up treasures here or I've tried to progress my life here. I'm sorry for the times, God, where I've gone to you and I've said, give me this thing that my life consists in before saying, Lord, my life is yours. Have your way. Father, I ask that you change my heart. Thank you that you promised to do that thing as I ask you to change my heart. Your word says that you've created in me a clean heart. You've renewed a right spirit within me. You, re you renew the joy of my salvation. I pray that you do that for each and every one of us as we reflect on your cross. It's in your strong name we pray.
Amen.